So if I were to ask you to share with me the number of Christians that were killed for their faith today, like on this calendar date, what would your answer be? So the truth is, I think most of us know that persecution and, and even martyrdom is a very real and present thing in our world today. Uh, we hear about it from time to time. Uh, we're listening to or we're watching the news and we hear, hey, here's a pastor and he's, he's been arrested overseas. He's been put into prison because of his faith. Or, or we hear about a youth group from American church that's traveled abroad for mission work only to be persecuted for their so-called insubordination to authorities. Or, or we might hear about a radical Islamic group claiming responsibility for killing an American couple who they branded as infidels. So I don't think there's any doubt. We're, we're all aware of persecution. But do we know the numbers? So would it surprise you if I told you that today, on this very ordinary day, some 13 Christians were killed because of their faith? Or would it surprise you if I told you that in addition to this, on this very ordinary day, 12 churches or church buildings were defaced or destroyed? Are you aware that today, 12 Christians have been unjustly arrested or imprisoned and one other was abducted all because of their faith? On every ordinary day, persecution goes on because of faith. It goes on on a worldwide scale, and it's been going on, I think we know this, for a long time. So on today's podcast, I want to begin a conversation centered on the topic of persecution. Uh, in a very real way, I believe that our narrative in the eighth chapter of Daniel is going to take us there. Um, while there's no way, of course, utilizing this medium, uh, a podcast, to thoroughly address the multitude of issues associated with persecution in our world, I do want to come around several questions as well as challenge each one of us to think about if and where persecution might fit into, into your life as a Christian living in these times. So first, I want us to think a little bit about distinctions. I hear a lot of people use the persecution word these days. In fact, I was talking to an individual this past week and he was pretty upset about our state school board's handling of sex education standards in our public schools. I think that's a hot topic across our country today. So in the course of talking, this individual made the comment that they believed that we as Christians are just not being heard when it comes to how we would like to see our children taught. And I think somewhere in the conversation, this individual said, and this, is, this isn't a direct quote, but I said, I think he said something like this. I believe that Christian children and families are facing persecution in our school system. But are we? Is what this person is experiencing a matter of persecution or is it a matter of cultural displacement? And what, by the way, is the difference? So I don't in any way want to deny that there's persecution going on in every country across this globe, including our own. But I do think we have to be careful about how we utilize the term. So we're going to talk about distinctions. Then I want to move on to what I'm going to call, for the purposes of our podcast, the three P's of persecution. The first P is perpetration. Like, where does persecution have its origins? And, and by the way, how, how, does, how does our answer fit into the grander narrative of Scripture? Second P is purpose. Here the question is, what is the purpose of persecution? 
Of course, it depends on the vantage point you take, and we'll get into that. Then the third P is power. Looked at through a biblical lens. What power does persecution have? Now, I, I believe this topic is going to carry us uh, through the next couple of weeks, but I want to dig in today. So let me tell you that one of the things that first started me thinking about this topic uh, is actually a book by Todd Nettleton. It's published just last year. The title of which is, quote, When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians, end quote. If you don't know the name Todd, the author of the book, it's part, he's part of an organization that I have high, high respect for. It's an organization called The Voice of of the martyrs. This organization was founded in 1967 by a pastor named Richard Wormbrand, who himself was actually imprisoned for his faith in communist Romania for a period of over 14 years. Through the voice of the author of Hebrews, uh, Richard tells his story. He says he became burdened for the persecuted. Um, Hebrews 13.3 reads, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. So over the years, the voice of martyrs has tried to do just that. It's served the church by making all of us a lot more aware of the presence of persecution in our world on a global scale, as well as providing avenues through which it becomes possible for, for you and I to serve individuals who are known to be in a persecuted state. So in this new book, Nettleton, who serves as chief of media relations for the organization, what he does, he conducts face-to-face -face interviews with Christians who have endured persecution in more than 30 different nations. Uh, this includes a Christian pastor in Iraq who has survived not one, but several assassination attempts. It includes a Chinese Christian woman who calls herself um, a person who spent six months in prison uh, he, she calls that a wonderful time in her life. So as I read Todd's book, I have to, I have to tell you, there's one story though that really struck me hard. It's not a pretty one. And, I, and I'll warn you up front that it, it may get inside of you the way it's gotten inside of me. The story took place in Afghanistan. Uh, Open Doors, another nonprofit that works in the space of persecution, says that Afghanistan is the number one persecuting country of Christians in the world. So in this story, a group of Muslim extremists, jihadists, they had developed this technique by which they were seeking to convert Christians to Islam. Now, again, this is horrible. In fact, part of me thought, I, I don't know if I should share this, but I want to, because I think it leads to an important question. So the technique the jihadists developed is that of kidnapping entire Christian families. Once kidnapped, the jihadists systematically will, will rape and abuse the women of the family, adult and children, in front of the men that are part of the family. They then remove the women from the room, the ones they've held in captive, and they begin to speak directly to the men. And I'll tell you, they, they promise to kill every female member of the family unless conversion to Islam takes place. Now, listen, I know that the enemy of our souls is without any remorse at all. He's a liar and he is a murderer. But I hear this story and it just breaks me. It, sh it shatters everything inside of me. And I find myself wondering just how sick, how demented can people become? 
So, so here's why I share this story. I think it raises a question that goes to the heart of our topic today, namely the question, what is persecution? By definition, what, what is it? A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an article that I think stirs this question to a point of distinction. Uh, the article was about the loss of cultural influence on the part of the church. The article is written by John Lindner, the director of external relations at Yale Divinity School. It's a really great article. In it, Lindner traces actually a 100-year history of mainline Protestantism in America. So it's his contention, and I think there's a lot of merit to this, that mainline Christianity has lost its place of dominance in American culture, beginning already in the 1960s. Prior to this, and, pr and particularly in the 1950s, Protestantism wielded enormous influence in American life. Christianity, its ideas, its morals, its values, all really took a prominent seat in the public realm of politics, law, cultural expression, particularly within the arts and media, but no more. Today, we live in a pluralistic culture where Christian teachings and values are sometimes suspect, often coming under fire. I'm going to try to put this in my own words. It just strikes me that in the year 2007, Dan Kimball wrote a book titled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. If you remember the book, Kimball touched upon the fact that in our pluralistic world, the church, the Christian church, is often seen as archaic. And its efforts to shape a Christian American worldview viewed as colonialistic and unwelcomed. And increasingly so. That, that was 2007. So let me say this. I, I really believe that if, if Dan Kimball were to write his book today, 15 years after its original publication, it would actually need a new title. The old title is They Like Jesus But Not the Church. The new title, just given the acceleration of cultural change that we've experienced, might read, They Dismiss Jesus and Hate the Church. So as more and more Christians reach a point of recognition that the Christian voice is no longer prominent or influential inside a culture, well, what's our response? And I think we know there's, there's actually a variety of responses. Some in Christianity really have, have kind of felt like we need to withdraw from culture, kind of separate ourselves and become, you know, more um, in, in to ourselves and and separate from the bad things going on in our world. I'm not sure that Jesus called us to separation. Others have really adopted political weapons. They've said, well, you know what? Let's fight fire with fire. Let's work inside of the politic to try to reestablish Christian morality through the law. Some have just become fearful. But the question is, is what we're experiencing, is it persecution? I, I know that some people would say, well, well yeah, look, I mean, I mean, the church has lost its place. But I, I really don't think so. Cultural displacement or, or the loss of a dominant place in, in culture, it's hard. I don't think anyone likes it. But it's different from persecution. I, I do believe that that cultural Displacement can be one part of what it means to create a, a cultural environment that's ripe for persecution. 
but it is not persecution in and of itself. So the real question is, what is? Allow me to give you three thoughts here. First, when I think about persecution, I think that it is, number one, something that we as Christians actually should expect. Jesus said it this way. He said, remember the words that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. Expect it. Strikes me that as, as Christians move from a place of cultural influence to a place of cultural displacement, there's, there's almost a sense of surprise at the level of pushback against the ways of Jesus that come from the world. Poignantly, there shouldn't be. Jesus said, church, expect it. As I read the scriptures, I believe that we will see an increase in both the frequency and intensity of pushback and actual persecution that goes on against conservative and traditional Christianity. Secondly, what, what is persecution? Well, it's something that's precipitated by and because of belief in Jesus and, of course, the engagement of his teachings. If I can say this simply, not, not all of the pushback that I receive as a Christian is actually persecution. So sometimes it's harassment or, or strong disagreement. But when the pushback happens as a result of my belief or, or my practice of Jesus' teaching, now, now it becomes persecution. Third, I believe that persecution takes on really a number of different forms, verbal, physical, and penal. In the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for persecution is radap, traditionally translated as to pursue, is the world pursuing us. In the New Testament, four terms apply. Dioko, diogmas, they carry the meaning of being pressed on or harassed, while the terms thalipsis and thalipo mean to afflict. There's actual affliction, e either physically or penally. So as you look at, at these through both the Testaments, old and new, forms of physical, social, mental, spiritual persecution, they're illustrated over and over again. And, and I think as we've read through the book of Daniel, we've witnessed just about every form of persecution one could identify. From the verbal harassments Daniel's enemies engaged against his worship practices, to laws that were passed preventing his practices, to physical arrest, imprisonment, and the effort to kill him. Da Daniel really experiences it all. But it's here in chapter 8 that we're introduced to a persecutor who will come, one who in some ways is more reflective of the persecutorial sentiments of our times, a Greek monster by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I want to take you back to the beginning of chapter 8 in Daniel's narratives. We're going, to, we're going to read five verses today, verses 5 through 10. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance, as we read this section, I want you to recognize with me that this part of Daniel's narrative is taking place within the context of a dream, a vision. And as such, please recognize with me that the elements of the dream are highly symbolic. We're going to meet up today with goats and rams. But they're not animals. They're symbols for nations and individuals who rise up within the historical periods that follow the rule of the Babylonian Empire, namely the Persians, 
who've already seized power over Babylon in Daniel's time, and the Greeks, who will rise up during a period following Daniel's death. So let me read these verses, and then we're going to parse them out in a way that I, I hope allows us to see that what God is showing Daniel has to do with persecution that will fall on the Judean world even after he is gone. Lord, we just ask for your insight as we read these verses. All right, Daniel, chapter 8, beginning verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. And he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, towards the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven. And it caused, listen to these words, it caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Those words even sound like persecution. So I told you this was symbolic and it is. So what in the world is it about? I'm going to try to simplify these verses. There's four primary symbols in this dream and that you have to pay attention to. Symbol number one is a ram. <clears throat> Does it symbolize? Well, we talked about this last week. The ram is Persia, who in Daniel's immediate time looks pretty invincible as far as empires go. Persia, really for a time, it was invincible. Notice that the ram pushes itself in three directions, north, south, west. Each represent the physical conquest on the part of Persia of another territory. Persia was expansive, but it also did not anticipate the next symbol in Daniel's dream, namely the male goat. Symbol number two, the male goat symbolizes what? Greece. And guess what? The goat is charging at the ram full speed with the intent to knock it down. And it succeeds. You know why? Because of symbol number three. Symbol number three, what is it? I'm going to give you a clue. You'll find this symbol between the eyes of the male goat. Just look at verse five. You'll see it there. Symbol number three is a horn that rises up out of the male goat. Specifically or historically, that horn stands for a Greek ruler named Alexander the Great. Listen to this. The Persians never won a major battle against Alexander the Great. Not one. The Greeks would go on to displace Persia as the dominant world power. And one in particular would come against Christianity. He's that last symbol. You're going to find his description in verse number nine. He's that little horn that grew out of one of the four horns representing Alexander the Great's empire post his death. This little horn has a name. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes who would do exactly what this narrative says. Listen to the words again. Verse 10 says, 
and it, the little horn, grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth and it trampled them down. I'm going to use our word here. That is persecution. Next week, I want to say a little bit more about the person persecution of the church under the rule of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. As we do, let's get a little bit deeper into what I'm going to call the purpose and power of persecution. Both of us, we look at it historically, but also in our individual lives. In preparation uh, this week, I, I'm going to ask you to spend a little time thinking about where you see it. Where do you see persecution of our Christian way of life in society today? Have you personally ever experienced it? What about your kids or grandkids? How has it entered your life? And more importantly, what are you doing with it? I'm going to stir that up. Well, that's all for this week. I, I'm just going to continue to ask you to, to pray for me. I enjoy and, and do lift you up on a regular basis, praying for your families. I uh, look forward to continuing this topic next week. And in the meantime, uh, I'm just going to say, have a God-sized week. Mm -hmm.